Welcome, everyone. Thank you all for joining us today for our Capitol Hill briefing titled Legal Immigration, Promises, uh, Problems and Solutions. My name is Jeff Vanderslice, and I am the Director of Government and External Affairs at the Cato Institute, a DC-based think tank uh, dedicated to the principles of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Uh, serving as the foundation of today's discussion is a just-published uh, policy analysis, just out today, in fact, uh, by Cato's David Beer, um, one of today's panelists, um, titled, Immigration Wait Times from Quotas Have Doubled, Green Card Backlogs Are Long, Growing, and Inequitable. You should all have uh, a copy on your chairs. If you don't, please let us know after the briefing. We'd be happy to uh, send you a link uh, or, or a hard copy, uh, bring it by your office. Um, uh, I mentioned that David Beer uh, will be speaking with you first. Also uh, on today's uh, panel is uh, Alex Narasta. Um, uh, Mr. Beer is uh, an immigration policy analyst at the Cato Institute whose expertise includes visa reform, border security, and interior enforcement. His work has been cited in the Washington Post, New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Politico, and many other print and online publications. From 2013 to 2015, Mr. Beer served as a senior policy advisor to former Congressman uh, Raul Labrador, a then member and later chairman of the um, uh, House Judiciary Committee's Subcommittee on Immigration and Border Enforcement. Um, Prior to joining the Cato Institute, he worked as uh, the immigration policy analyst at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, and most recently as the director of immigration policy at the Niskanen Center. Uh, up after that will be Mr. Narasta, who is the director of immigration studies at the Cato Institute, whose writing has uh, appeared in periodicals such as the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, USA Today, and many others, and whose peer-reviewed academic research has appeared in the World Bank Economic Review, the Journal of Economic Behavior and uh, Organization, Economic Affairs, and the uh, Fletcher Security Review and Public Choice. He is a regular guest on NPR, Fox News, MSNBC, Bloomberg, and numerous other TV and radio stations across the country. Uh, Mr. Narasta is a native of Southern California and received his BA in economics from George Mason University and an MS degree in economic history from the London School of Economics. Uh, our panelists will speak uh, about 15 to 20 minutes each, which will take us to about 12.45, at which time we'll open up the floor to Q&A uh, to have uh, hopefully a robust discussion with all of you. Thank you for being here. Hello, everyone. Thank you for being here. As was mentioned, my name is David Beer, immigration policy analyst here at uh, the Cato Institute. My talk today is going to focus primarily on the subject of my paper, which you'll find, and not to give away the punchline or anything, but it's entitled Immigration Wait Times from Quotas Have Doubled. Here's the trigger warning on my talk. It is going to be wonky. Uh, so if you're into the details of legal immigration, this is the talk uh, for you. I hope it will provide you a good understanding of our legal immigration system and its problems and some of the solutions uh, to those problems. Am I up? All right. So just to start off with some definitions, uh, green cards are the documents 
that demonstrate proof of legal permanent residence in the United States. This is the legal definition of an immigrant, someone who is entitled to live and work in the United States permanently. That's different from foreign students, tourists, business travelers, and temporary workers, of whom we'll hear a lot more from my colleague uh, shortly. Immigrants to the United States can face two different types of weights. The first type is just a bureaucratic uh, processing times, the time it takes to adjudicate an application. Uh, first, for the sponsor of the immigrant, their petition needs to be processed, and then the application of the immigrant themselves. But there's another type of weight, which is the focus of uh, my paper. And that is the time it takes for a green card to become available under the immigration quotas. The quotas are the annual limits on green cards uh, for certain types of immigrants. In general, only three types of immigrants don't have any uh, quota at all. Those are for spouses, parents, and minor children of US citizens. Other immigrants have a quota. Um, some have waiting lists and others do not. So refugees and diversity lottery winners, they have a quota, but uh, the government only accepts as many applicants as it's going to admit in a, in a year. So there's no waiting list, there's no waiting time, uh, though many, of course, do wait overseas a long time for the chance to access those categories. But a third of all immigrants have quotas and they have waiting lists, and that's who I'm going to focus on uh, today. That's the red portion of the pie chart there. These are those immigrants. Um, here are the, the quota categories with the waiting lists. The, the quota system in immigration law is known as the preference system because all of the categories are prioritized um, in order of preference. Congress last updated these quotas in the Immigration Act of 1990. The preference system is divided into family preference and employment uh, preference categories. And each of the categories have their own separate quotas. So we're all waiting in different lines. But that's not all. Each nationality within those categories is waiting in a separate line. Because the law states that no nationality can use more than 7% of the green cards made available in a year. Meaning that if a country hits that limit, nationals of other countries get to pass them in the line. These per-country limits, as they're known, almost exclusively affect Mexicans, Filipinos, Chinese, and especially Indians, because these countries have so many applicants uh, relative to other countries. Here's how the process for uh, the quota categories works. First, they must be sponsored by a family or a family member or an employer. They wait for processing of that petition. And second, the immigrant is informed that the quota in their category is filled. And they have to wait until a number is available at some date in the future. And then finally, after they get through that wait, they're informed that the immigrant can apply and they have to wait for processing of that petition. So you have two bureaucratic processing waits and in the middle, you have this wait. Uh, that's uh, what we're going to discuss now. Every month, uh, the State Department publishes what it calls the Visa Bulletin. And here's an example 
from October 2018. They show the dates that you have to have been sponsored before. This is the date on which someone is sponsored. So for, uh, for example, um, siblings of US citizens from Mexico, which is highlighted right here, were sponsored uh, before January 22nd, 1998, could apply for a green card. And that's what the visa bulletin is telling people. If you were sponsored before this date, you can apply. So more than 20 years ago, these people were first sponsored, and now they're uh, eligible to apply for a green card. That is the wait time that we're talking about. Because every immigrant is waiting in separate lines with different waits. No one has been tracking what the average is for the average immigrant moving through this quota process since it was last updated. And that's what uh, my paper uh, does. And here is the result. Paper, the paper shows that since 1991, when the last update was implemented, the wait times as a result of the quotas doubled from two years and eight months to five years and 10 months. These are rounded to three and six years. For Indians, uh, they're the nationality that had the longest wait. Uh, the waits were eight years and six months before they could even apply for the green card. But these are just the averages. Due to the separate category limits and the per country limits, the variation between individuals is huge. So 28% waited more than a decade to apply for a green card. And 5% waited more than two decades to apply. That's up from just 3%. So just 3% in 1991 were waiting more than a decade to apply for a green card. On the other extreme, just 2% um, had no wait at all in 2018. In 1991, almost a third of immigrants going through the quota categories didn't have to wait at all as a result of the quotas. They could immediately apply. Um, that's almost completely gone away from our system. So the system has clearly already become something Congress never envisioned when it enacted the Immigration Act of 1990. They thought wait times would be one thing. Now they are something so completely different, it's almost unimaginable. But here's the thing. It's going to get so much worse in the future for legal immigrants. That's because these waits have resulted in a massive backlog of applicants. Nearly 5 million people were waiting for uh, the opportunity to apply for a green card in 2018. Under the current system, it will take more than a century to process all of these people in all of these different lines under current law. Obviously, that's impossible. They will not all get processed. Um, my estimates in the report show that based on the average mortality rate for individuals, uh, that at least 675,000 people who are currently waiting for a green card will die before they get their green card. That's about 14% of all the people who are currently waiting uh, in line. Here's just one example uh, for the EB2, EB3 categories. These are employer-sponsored immigrants from India. Uh, currently, there are about 550,000 Indians waiting 
in line for a green card. It will take 49 years to work through everyone if they all refuse to give up and stick it out to the end. Uh, about 9% will die, so about 50,000 uh, people will die uh, before they get their green card. And you'll notice this other category called children aging out, and it's worth taking a, a little bit of a detour into this rather horrific aspect of our legal immigration system and a consequence of the wait times. Under immigration law, any immigrant is entitled to bring with them their spouse and minor children. So their children wait in line with them as they go through the process. But when the immigrants turn, when the child turns 21, they lose eligibility because they're no longer considered a minor child under immigration law. That's what's called aging out. This hardship is particularly uh, difficult for Indian nationals because almost all of them are already in the United States working on an H-1B visa, which is a temporary high-skilled visa. So they're in the United States with their family, their child is here legally growing up here in the United States, and on their 21st birthday, they're informed you lose your legal status in the United States. You either have to deport or find another status, usually some student visa status or otherwise. Then they would have to find another employer to sponsor them separately. They get no credit for all the time that they already spent waiting in the green card queue. And if the wait times uh, in this paper are correct, they will never, ever be eligible for uh, a green card through the employer-sponsored uh, system. So to sum up the current situation, immigrants are waiting longer than ever for green cards, twice as long to get through the process, 28% of them are waiting more than a decade. Something must be done to keep legal immigration viable into the 21st century. I have four proposals uh, that I outline in more detail in the paper. Uh, the first is to end the per-country limits. Uh, there's absolutely no reason to take into account someone's nationality when deciding to award a green card or not. It makes no sense to make certain applicants wait so much longer simply based on where they were born. In the employment-based system, the per-country limits make even less sense because they discriminate against higher-paid immigrants from India and China. This is a, a chart showing the average wage offer for an employer-sponsored immigrant by country of origin. And then it shows what do, doing away with the per-country limits would do to the average wage of a new immigrant. So the average wage offer with the per-country limits was $95,000, uh, obviously very high, very highly skilled to begin with, but doing away with the per-country limits would increase that by almost $12,000. So ending the per-country limits would be a good economic choice, um, but rather than waiting 49 years as Indians will have to do in order to get through the process, along the which many people will die and children will age out, it would take just six or seven years to process everyone who's in the backlog of all nationalities if we did away with the per-country limits. Of course, those six or seven years is still too long. Uh, we need to do something about the absolute number of immigrants. We just can't uh, shuffle people around. 
And so my first proposal on this uh, involves stop counting spouses and minor children against the green card limits. So right now, uh, as was mentioned, spouses and minor children are eligible to come with the worker, uh, but they count against the cap. So right now, half of the green card limits for workers go to their family members, not to the workers themselves. Doesn't make sense to reduce the quota for workers based on whether someone's married or not, or whether they have children. We should have uh, a quota that's focused on the uh, individuals that we want to invite into our society. The uh, third policy proposal recognizes the fact that since 1990, the US population has increased by a third, and the economy has doubled in size. And yet the immigration quotas have remained exactly the same as they were in 1990. That makes no sense. Congress should link the immigration quotas to population growth or economic growth um, so that the numbers rise with the increase in the number of families and rise with the increase in economic growth. So uh, a, a static uh, world, is, is that's not reality. We live in a dynamic world. We should have dynamic immigration quotas as well. My final proposal is that Congress should create a five-year limit on wait times. I argue that five years is a reasonable amount of time to expect immigrants to wait. Other people could argue for a different number. They could say, you know, seven years, ten years. Some people might want only one year. Uh, but whatever Congress decides is a reasonable amount of time to expect legal immigrants to wait. They should enact that into law. Uh, because we don't know what the future holds. We don't know uh, how things might change. Um, but we should not have indefinite, endless waits for people who are trying to follow uh, the rules that Congress created. Of course, these measures will increase legal immigration. So I want to conclude by placing some context around the number of immigrants that the United States admits uh, to the country each year. Here is the annual rate of legal immigration. This is the number of legal immigrants as a percentage of the population by year since 1820. As you can see, right now the U.S. is well below the historical average and far below the historical highs for legal immigration. Not only are, we, are the numbers low historically for the United States, they're also low uh, internationally. So this shows the foreign-born share of the population for OECD countries in 2015. Hasn't changed much uh, in the meantime. The US uh, ranks far behind countries like Luxembourg, who's highlighted, then Australia, New Zealand, Canada, all have much higher levels of uh, uh, foreign-born share of their population than the United States does. I also put in the legal share of the population, which is even lower uh, than the overall share. Here's the rate as a percentage of the population. So this is the annual percentage increase in the population as a result of just legal immigration to the OECD countries. Again, the U.S. ranks quite low on that score, uh, well beyond, behind New Zealand, who's, who's highlighted there, Australia, 
and Canada, um, all who have much higher rates of legal immigration. Uh, but we're told that Canada is all about merit-based immigration, not family-based. Uh, this is incorrect. This is a myth. Uh, if you look at a percentage of the population, uh, Canada allows pretty much the same rate as fam of family-sponsored immigration as the United States does. They allow more uh, humanitarian uh, immigration, about double, and they allow about 10 times more uh, skills-based uh, economic-based uh, immigration than the United States does. So if the United States wants to be like Canada, they should increase the amount of employer-sponsored slots or employment-based slots by about tenfold uh, relative to where we are now. Uh, the other thing you should note is that just a category does not define a person. And so if you look at the uh, educational attainment for new legal immigrants who are adults uh, in 2016, Canada compared to the United States, it's pretty much the same. It's very, very close uh, in terms of the skill level of immigrants to Canada versus immigrants to the United States. And that's because family-sponsored immigrants uh, are actually quite highly skilled, uh, the ones who come to the United States. If you look at, this is again 2015, um, but for recent immigrants under the family-sponsored and diversity visa lottery programs, about half had a college degree or above, and only 11% had no high school education at all. About 90% of this group is family-sponsored. So family-sponsored immigrants to the United States are not um, you know, people without any skills, as you may have heard. So I'll just conclude by saying that I think we really, it's really important that Congress keeps legal immigration viable in the future. Um, we shouldn't have a situation where people who are trying to follow the rules uh, face endless waits, indefinite backlogs. Um, we should focus on treating legal immigrants better if we want to get people to follow the law, follow the rules, and come the right way. And I think Alex will now uh, discuss that in a little more detail. Thank you. Well, thank you, David, for that presentation. I'm going to be talking about a different aspect of the legal migration system, and that is the temporary uh, legal workers in the United States, which can fill in many of the gaps that are left by the current green card system or to any reforms that David discussed today. So a little background. Uh, David talked about the permanent system, the uh, immigration system, the green card categories. I'm going to be talking about the temporary uh, migration. Uh, some people call them guest worker visas, uh, but I'm going to be focusing on those that are lower skilled, specifically in the H-2B and H-2A categories. H-2A visa is a temporary agricultural worker for seasonal employment in the United States. There are regulations promulgated by four different federal agencies that regulate these uh, visas, uh, the Department of Homeland Security, Department of Agriculture, Department of State, Department of Labor. There are regulations on uh, wage rates that these workers can be paid. There are regulations about the types of housing and transportation that the employer has to provide. Um, 
I'm a, I've never had a job in the U.S. where the employer has to pay by rule, by law, for my transportation or housing, but they have to for this category right here. Um, usually the money you get is what you decide to pay on your transportation and housing as the worker yourself, but they have no choice under this type of system. Uh, and there are multitudes of other rules and regulations. One of the more onerous ones, it is only for seasonal or temporary employment in agriculture. It's not for year-round. So one of the big types of industries in agriculture that is excluded from this uh, is anything having to do with dairy. Uh, dairy is year-round. Cows don't take a month or two off from being milked, so you have to have them milked all the time. Virtually 100% of the foreign-born workers um, in the dairy industry, or close to 100%, are uh, unauthorized or illegal immigrants in the United States. Uh, we predict that if H-2A visas were reformed to the extent that they could be year-round and non-seasonal, then they'd very quickly, those unauthorized workers would be replaced by uh, legal workers on the temporary agricultural employment visa, the H-2A. Second one is the H-2B, uh, temporary non-agricultural employment in the United States. Uh, if you've been to a ski resort, if you've been to hotels, if you buy, if, if you've ever worked in crab fishing in the Chesapeake, uh, or any other types of employment, that's where a lot of these sort of dominate. Uh, they're also seasonal, temporary. Uh, they are numerically capped at 66,000 under statute, uh, but uh, Congress for the last several years has been allowing those who have been on those visas previously to come back and not count against the cap, usually up to 30,000 uh, 30, additional workers each year. Uh, this is basically the um, extent to the lower-skilled guest worker visas in the United States that are available currently to workers. Now, why have a subsection, after David's wonderful presentation about the problems with green cards, why have a subsection about uh, temporary worker visas. Well, one of the uh, charts, and these are on your, your tables or on the chairs um, that you're sitting on if, or if you pick them up, but it's um, as, as much as I love David's presentation, it is a very, this is a much better legal map, I think, of what the current green card system looks like. Highly simplified 30,000 foot view of only some small portions of the legal immigration system. This is just how to get a green card. Um, if you guys remember, um, they put out legal maps like this all the time to show how complex these systems are. Uh, Elizabeth Hull, who is a professor at Rutgers University, has said that the immigration system is second in complexity only to the income tax. Um, that might be an understatement. It might be the most complicated now. But if you were like a Soviet apparatchik in the 1980s, this might be like familiar to you. You guys watch Chernobyl? This would be like a prop in there, wouldn't it? Like, oh, well, we got to tell this bureaucrat about this to do this to shut down the nuclear reactor, and 40 years later, everyone's dead. Well, that's basically what we just heard about with the legal immigration system, and this is sort of a legal map of this. So this is why I think temporary workers are so important, is they fill in gaps that are not met in the green card categories. So one of the major reasons to support temporary workers on H-2 visas, whether they're H-2As or H-2Bs. I think there's lots of good economic reasons for this. These people fill valuable niches in our economy. They literally add factors of production, which is people who are here working, making goods and services that otherwise wouldn't be produced in the United States. Or if they would be produced, they'd be much less efficiently produced. But one of the big reasons is that it slashes, it decreases illegal immigration or unauthorized immigration. So what I have here is a simple chart 
the orange is the number of apprehensions along the southwest border of unauthorized Mexicans, and the numbers correspond to the left-hand side. So it goes from like 1.6 million in 2000 to under 200,000 in the year 2018. The right-hand side, the blue line, is the increase in H-2 visas specifically for Mexicans over this time period. Now, you don't have to be a statistician or econometrician to look at that and be like, well, it looks like an inverse relationship. Looks like when one goes up, the other one goes down. Um, that looks pretty good. Now, one of the things that happened during this time period with the H-2s is not only did the numbers go up for Mexicans, as sort of this, this chart shows right here, um, but they really didn't go up for anybody else. So what this shows is, you know, in the blue right here, these are H-2s for people from the Northern Triangle countries. Uh, these are the countries of Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador who are currently sending many of the asylum seekers and unlawful immigrants along the border. There was really no increase for these people during this time period. It went from basically 3,500 to about 9,000 visas for people in these countries. Um, the others are in the orange. These are for other countries. And then the gray is for Mexican workers on this. And they went up um, about five-fold in terms of the total numbers during this time period. So you can say that this visa was largely Mexicanized, if that's a word. Uh, it's not a word, but it's catchy, I think. So basically, this visa was Mexicanized in a way whereby it was it almost intentionally designed to drive would-be unauthorized Mexican workers into the legal market. Whereas before in 2000 and the early 2000s, they didn't have an option. If you wanted to come to the U.S. and work temporarily, uh, your options were to come unlawfully or to go into one of the handful of visas here, but there really weren't that many available. So what happened is the U.S. government uh, increased the numbers dramatically, and what we saw was a vast decline in the numbers of unauthorized Mexicans entering the United States who were apprehended. So I did a little bit of a regression. Don't worry, I'm going to walk you through it. It's not like that complicated, not that hard. Uh, but basically what we wanted to see is what is the impact on um, the number of Mexicans apprehended at the border by Border Patrol and uh, how that changes based on the number of new H-2 visas issued for Mexicans. Uh, we used two controls. This is we took a look at the U.S. unemployment rate and the number of Border Patrol agents in the southwest border. We did that because unemployment rate, economy is better. We expect more people to come here. They want to come here either unlawfully or legally. And Border Patrol agents do act as somewhat of a deterrent to people coming here by apprehending people, et cetera. What we basically found is that a 1% increase in the number of H-2 visas for Mexicans caused the number of Mexican apprehensions to drop by 9%. So basically a 1% increase in the number of H-2 visas, 9% fewer apprehensions of Mexicans. And the number of Mexican apprehensions is a proxy measurement for the flow coming across. You know, it's very hard to measure black markets, obviously, right? They're illegal. Um, but what we use as a proxy and what other researchers use as a proxy is the number of apprehensions because that is probably correlated very closely with the unauthorized flow. Now, what we also found is that a 1% increase in Border Patrol agents declined Mexican apprehensions by 16%. So that's an important caveat. And here's the regression output. To look at that, uh, both the visa effects and the Border Patrol stat uh, are significant at the 1% level. Unemployment has no effect. This is the graph. We have on the x-axis or the bottom line the number of H-2 visas for Mexicans. On the y-axis is the apprehensions. These are logged numbers. That's why they look kind of funny. Uh, but it's what you want to do with the, for this type of regression. And basically, there's a negative relationship, which means the more visas, uh, the fewer number of Mexicans who are apprehended at the border, which means the fewer number of them are trying to come across. Because otherwise, instead of trying to 
come across the border unlawfully, they can actually use a visa, and very few people want to come across unlawfully if they have an option of using a visa. This is uh, consistent with what we know historically. In the early 1950s, there was a large population of unauthorized Mexican immigrants in the United States, working primarily in agriculture in the Southwest. Um, President Eisenhower uh, combined both an increase in enforcement in the early 1950s, but also an increase in the number of guest worker visa programs to the so-called Bracero program. So what you see here is the number of apprehensions, a proxy measurement for the inflow of unauthorized immigrants from Mexico, basically drop off dramatically in the early to mid-50s when the numbers of new visas issued uh, increased. What we basically find is that every new visa basically replaced three unauthorized Mexicans who tried to enter to work in the United States. The reason why this ended basically in the mid-1960s was due to um, uh, a scandal having to do with Bracero working conditions in this visa, lobbying by labor unions in the United States, and some other uh, political nonsense that basically ended the lawful means for these folks to come into the U.S. and work. After that, what we saw is an increase in the number of apprehensions because ending a visa and ending the way for people to come here legally did not change fundamentally the U.S. economy um, at all, it did not change our demand for lower-skilled workers, but what it just did was per turn them into the black market, make it so that they were coming unlawfully rather than coming legally. Here's a regression for that. Basically, number of Border Patrol agents, um, the number of um, a 1% increase, uh, uh, basically a 1% um, increase in the um, number of visas decreased the number of apprehensions by 6% during this time period. That's significant at the 1% level, so that's a pretty good trade-off. Border Patrol agents, that's significant at the 5%, uh, but it's a larger impact there. This is the relationship between visas and apprehensions during the Bracero period in the 50s and early 60s. Pretty similar to today, not too dissimilar. So as I see it, there are a couple major options for policymakers just looking at the current system as it is right now without considering any larger reforms. One, increase the number of H-2 visas. This is the cheapest and easiest option, the near, tax, near zero dollar in terms of taxpayer costs. You don't have to hire anybody more to do it. You don't have expensive pensions. You don't have anything else you really have to deal with. You have increased economic output in the United States because these folks work. Thus, you're going to have more tax revenue being paid. They also have little to no uh, increase in benefits consumption because these folks don't have access to means-tested welfare benefits under current law, uh, with some very small exceptions. One of the things I recommend doing, um, based on what's going on currently at the border, is to target increases to Central Americans. Um, in the same way that the government Mexicanized, <laughs> I love that, Mexicanized H-2 visas in the mid to late 2000s, they should Central Americanize a lot of the increase in H-2 visas going forward to try to drive some of these folks who are coming here either as asylum seekers or unlawful immigrants into the legal market. Uh, my colleague David Beer has a paper coming out specifically on how to do that, but please feel free to pepper him with questions uh, so he can give away the secrets in his paper before it's released. Uh, the other option is to hire more Border Patrol agents. Now remember, I showed you that a 1% increase and Border Patrol agents uh, on the border did have a decrease effect, a larger effect, actually, on um, decreasing um, unauthorized Mexican uh, apprehensions along the border. But this has some other costs to it. One, it's more expensive, a lot more expensive and difficult. Two, uh, the median salary for a Border Patrol agent starting is $55,863. That's a lot of money uh, for people who are going to be around for a very long time as government employees. 
the recent sort of fiasco with Accenture, if you followed this at all, Accenture was given a government contract of $300 million to hire a few thousand Border Patrol agents. They hired like seven, a uh, big disaster. Um, and this isn't as relevant currently for Central Americans. So if Central American is coming here to ask for asylum, a uh, number of Border Patrol agents is not going to deter that person under the current system. So this would be more of a, if I could phrase it this way, hiring more Border Patrol agents might have worked um, when we had a large number of Mexican immigrants coming to the border, unauthorized immigrants. Uh, but that's not the reality now. So maybe 20 years ago would have made a big difference, uh, 15 years ago. But it's not really the current uh, policy that would work. So what are some other options? Let's say you want to move beyond just Reform. So the current system, you want to sort of think bigger, think a little more different about what to do. Uh, I think market-based visas are a wonderful option to think about how to expand temporary migration going forward. So one way uh, introduced in a bill by Senator Ron Johnson in 2017, S-1040, uh, is sort of to create a state-based visa program. So temporary visas, um, but instead of having people in Washington, D.C. decide the parameters of these visas, decide whether... You can be in agriculture year-round, this type of industry for this long, et cetera. Um, give states a certain number of visas, each state, and let them decide. I'm sure the visas that Colorado, California, New York, or Alabama wants are very different from each other. They have different industries, uh, different labor needs. Uh, there's no real good entrepreneurship visa, for instance, so let some states experiment and create an entrepreneurship visa if they want to have it regulated by the federal government. Uh, the bill that Ron Johnson introduced would have allocated an um, average of 10,000 visas to each state uh, by year uh, to allow them to basically experiment on, uh, on this, like what kind of migrants do they want to work temporarily in their states. So take a lot of this debate out of D.C. and put it in the state level. I think that'd be um, a nice relief for a lot of us. Second one is sort of an immigration tariff. This is the idea of having a fixed price for uh, visas, but leaving the quantity uncapped, and you basically sell them. You can make it temporary, you can make it permanent, whatever. If it's permanent, you can charge a higher price. If it's temporary, you have to charge a lower price. But this is basically the idea of taking like a tariff in international trade and replacing it with visas. So it's sort of an out there proposal. I have a few papers about how this would work, but this was a proposal um, that originated with uh, Nobel Prize winning economist Gary Becker. Um, so it's probably worth considering just because a Nobel Prize winning economist said it was worth considering. So uh, that's my appeal to authority for the afternoon. Uh, visa auctions, this sort of does the exact opposite. Fix the quantity, but allows the price to fluctuate, allow people to bid on the visas. So allow employers, allow the immigrants themselves, allow their families, whatever, to bid. You can use the money from visa auctions or the immigration tariff to do whatever you want. So let's say um, in order to make a deal, you need to increase the amount of enforcement on the border. In order to increase legal immigration, you can use this as a, way, a means to raise revenue for those types of activities. You could use it in the way that I'd like the best to have a tax cut for Americans or a refund in every check every year. So there's lots of things you can do with that type of money. Um, and then other market-based visas. Uh, there are numerous other proposals out there. Uh, where basically the numbers of visas rise or fall based on a government formula. Um, I prefer letting the market decide, hence market-based visa, but you could have a complicated government formula if you want. There was one in S744 in 2013, so that's another way that you can do it. So conclusion, I think the easiest thing to do within the context of the current system is increase the number of H2 visas. It 
slashed Mexican unauthorized immigration uh, during the last 20 years substantially by diverting them into the legal market. Uh, specifically, I think you should focus on increasing H-2 visas for Central Americans, but without cutting them from Mexicans. Because if you take them away from Mexicans, then I think there's a good chance you'll see more Mexican unauthorized immigration. So it has to be a net increase without taking them away from Mexicans in order to really solve this problem. And then on top of that, I think you should deregulate the H-2 visa to make it a lot easier. Uh, increase the number, remove the numerical caps, Remove the DOL from the approval process because that's the most expensive portion. Replace the approval process with a veto-only process where basically the government assumes that all the H-2 visa uh, applications are great, are approved, unless they specifically target and veto them individually rather than all of them having to go through a complicated approval process. So if you understand how incentives work, that's a much better way to get more visas that are coming in lawfully. That's what the U.S. government used to do prior to 1965 uh, with the H-2 visa, but it really hasn't done since. Um, in addition to that, I think another reform that would be friendly is allowing H-2 workers to change employers much more easily so that they are less likely to have bad working conditions because the best protection against bad working conditions is to be able to tell your boss that you quit and go somewhere else. That's the number one uh, protection for that. And then lastly, I think market-based visas are a very good reform uh, to this system. I think if we're going to have a lasting long-term reform that will put David and I out of a job, um, which would be fine with me. I'd like to reform this system and do something else eventually. No, I'm just joking. I love my job. But I want to be able to, uh, I want you to put us out of the job. So please put us out of a job, create a market-based visa system that will actually work so that we can get control of the border uh, once and for all and increase the economic benefits to the United States of uh, lawful migration. So thank you very much, and we have time for some questions. Okay, they both threw a lot up there, uh, and I think there's uh, plenty of, of you in here uh, for hopefully some robust discussion. So who wants to start us off with the first question? I see a hand, just the tip of it in the back uh, right-hand corner of the room. Yes. Hi. Uh, thank you for this talk. I was wondering um, what kind of labor condition um, proposals you would have to make sure you increase the um, quality of labor conditions um, for workers on H-2 visas. You mentioned the um, Bracera program and how workers there were mistreated. I was wondering how... Uh, what you would propose to make sure workers in the H-2 visas are treated properly, because it's hard to change employers when you're on an employer-based, like, visa. Yeah, thank you. It, it is hard to do that. So I think we can take a look at guidance. During World War I, the government had a temporary visa for Mexican workers in uh, railroads and in agriculture. And uh, what it basically did was got, uh, it gave permission to the employers to hire, and then it said, it issued a lot of visas to Mexicans, and they could choose where to go between any of these large numbers of employers that were licensed to hire them. So um, that's one way that you can do it. The other way that you can do it is um, basically make it so that you have a period of time where an H-2 worker is unemployed before they lose their status so they can switch jobs without, you know, if they get fired or lose their job because they want to import uh, their uh, employer, they don't immediately become unauthorized immigrants and subject to deportation. So you have like a period of time in there, like a month or two, uh, where they can change jobs like that. And then three, make it so that um, if they change jobs, then they don't have to get ex-ante permission from the government to do it, but they have to report it ex-post. 
I think are uh, a couple of different ways that you can do it to remove a lot of those problems. Uh, but the number one thing is to try as much as possible to give the power to the employee to change jobs or to find the employer that he or she wants because we need to decentralize it as much as possible. Like as much as the DOL tries or labor inspectors try, they're never gonna be as good as you, know, you yourself as the worker in determining whether the conditions are good or bad. Just to add to that, uh, one of the problems is when you have a very burdensome regulatory structure, and Alex alluded to this, you have a very burdensome structure to get an approval for a visa in the first place or to hire the worker in the first place for the, from the employer's perspective, then if in order to change the job, that's actually a hurdle for the worker to improve his conditions, get better wages, uh, seek out a new employer. So if, it, if you make it very difficult for employers to hire in the first place, as H-2A and H-2B are very difficult, then it is more likely that the worker is gonna be stuck with uh, whoever hired them the first time, as opposed to being able to, you know, access the market. Great. Next. Yes, please. Hi, I'm Claire Cowley with the National Hispanic Caucus of State Legislators, and this question is specifically for Alex. Would immigration tariffs be very similar to naturalization fees? So um, this is the thing that because it doesn't exist, <laughs> it could be any way you want it to be. Um, so the way in my paper, and I have a few copies up here, I'll share one with you afterwards. Uh, there are a few goals that I think Congress could consider or should consider when setting visas, uh, setting the fees for these. Uh, one of them would be to take a look at sort of the worst case fiscal outcome for individuals based on their age of when they arrive and their education. So you can take a look at the National Academies of Sciences 2016 report on the economics of immigration, and they have a model in there based on the net tax revenue paid by immigrants based on their age of arrival and education. So you can take a look at that and, and uh, take a look at those sort of worst case scenario and charge a price so that there's no way that those folks would basically be a fiscal negative. The other one is to take account of the prices that smugglers charge, human smugglers charge to come to the United States to try to um, outcompete them. So one way to think about a lot of the human smugglers that are coming here, and some of them charge prices upwards of fifty or $60,000 to come to the U.S. Uh, for people from China, for instance, is um, you know, it's pretty dangerous. They don't all make it. There's no refund if something goes wrong. Um, you're dealing in the black market, so it's dangerous, hard to enforce contracts. And then once they get here, they can be arrested and deported. So people willing to pay fifty dollars or $60,000 for a chance of working in the U.S. black market would probably be willing to pay more for the certainty of working in the legal market um, in the United States. For a lot of Central Americans, the price of coming here is between, uh, depends on the recent, you know, the, the, the recent evidence out there and news stories, so a lot of it's anecdotal, um, so we can't really measure uh, black market. But a lot of the estimates from Central America are between like six dollars and $15,000 uh, to be able to come up here. Uh, that's a lot of money, especially for an impoverished person from Central America. But what we see is they tend to borrow from their families, they tend to borrow from their neighbors, they tend to borrow from the smugglers themselves. And that's for a chance of coming in. So they could come here, they could ask for asylum, uh, then they might eventually be working unlawfully in the United States in the black market after coming here in dangerous conditions where they could be abused and taken advantage of. Um, let's see, you charge them $30,000 or something like that with the certainty of being able to work lawfully 
uh, which means higher wages in the U.S., where they can just take a quick airplane ride or a bus. Uh, I think you channel a lot of these folks into the, um, into the lawful market uh, going forward. But the price consideration is one of the most important ones. It's the one that needs to be considered uh, carefully. I have no doubt that Congress will probably not set the optimum efficiency prices for these, but if it is a net increase in lawful immigration, then I think it'll be more economically efficient than the current system that we have right now. I think I saw someone at the front of the room here. Yes. A front row here. Hello. In your proposal to increase the number of uh, worker visas, do you have any proposals to also deal with visa overstay? Because what I could see is that you, yes, you cut down the number of people trying to cross the border illegally, but then they just later become illegal immigrants for overstaying their visas. Uh, so almost all the visa overstays have come in on tourist visas. Um, very few, I believe it's what, one, one percent, one percent, yeah. Yeah. So basically less than 1% of either of those like overstay. So that's not really a problem. One of the reasons why that is, is if you overstay your H2 visa, then you can't get another one going forward. So, and working lawfully in the United States, controlling for everything else, 11% uh, higher wages on average than working unlawfully in the black market. So it does pay uh, to follow the rules if you can follow the rules, assuming there's enough visas, right, to do this. So uh, over 90% of all the um, unlawful um, uh, visa overstays are uh, basically tourist visas. And a lot of those people who come in on tourist visas would come in on H-2s um, to be able to work lawfully. So you would diminish, I think, the visa overstay rate for tourist visas quite substantially because there's no doubt in my mind a lot of those people come here to work because they don't have an option through the H-2 visa and then they overstay. So you could probably cut down a lot or at least a good amount on a H-2 over, uh, on a, a, a B visa or tourist visa overstays um, just by increasing the H-2s. And that's, uh, that's from the Government Accountability Office report uh, that estimated the visa overstay population by uh, initial entry. So just in case you want to follow up on that. The other interesting thing about that uh, point about them wanting to be able to come back year after year after year on these temporary visas, um, it, this undermines the claim that you sometimes hear about them being slaves or being just horribly mistreated. There are terrible stories out there that you can find, but that's not representative of the entire H-2A or H-2B system at all. Otherwise, you would not have people coming back year after year after year. And in fact, when in 2007, the government allowed anyone who had previously entered on an H-2B visa to be exempt from the cap, basically doubled the program <laughs> overnight, which means that you had all of these people who had previously entered now wanting to you know come back again so um that also addresses one of the top complaints with guest workers uh yes toward the back of the room i'm jay Morey with uh congressman kind's office and mr beer i was just wondering i couldn't really gather an impression of your views on more wholesale immigration reform such as the Canadian style point system, would you, like, I just wanted to know your, your views on something like that. Sure. So, um, 
I like the U.S. system in the sense that it's market-driven. I think there is a way you can do a point system. I actually uh, wrote a post about this recently that sort of lays out what I think uh, would be a good way to do a point system. I think a point system can be very effective by taking into account other criteria beyond uh, you know, just whether someone has sponsored you um, for employment. So, for example, your age, uh, if you're a younger worker, uh, you have a higher wage offer, you could be prioritized. Um, so I think there is a way to do a point system that could be very effective, but it needs to be one that's primarily driven by the market. Um, it should be almost mandatory that you have uh, a job waiting for you. Um, and really the Canadian system over the last decade has moved in that direction. They've increased the amount of points allotted to people who uh, have a job offer and away from just these, you know, English language ability, these these criteria that look good on paper, but nothing is as good a measure of whether or not you're compatible with the market as whether or not you actually have a job offer waiting for you. Yes, towards the back of the room. Have you looked at ways to fix the uh, problem that you had mentioned with um, per country caps? by in, instead of getting rid of the caps altogether, tying it either to the country's total population or the uh, percentage of uh, people in that country that immigrate to other countries overall, not just to the US. Um, that way, there's still some kind of a, a limit so that one or two countries can't monopolize all the visas, but still allow countries with high interest in coming to the US or high populations to, uh, to not have as long waiting lists. Um, I, I think that that's, you know, going to be a very complicated um, solution to the issue. Um, you know, personally, I don't think it's, it's you know, something that, the go that government should take into consideration at all. Um, there's no situation where it's going to be monopolized by a single country if people are being processed on a first-come, first-served basis. Now, in a transition period where you have 100% of the backlog being Indian nationals, or almost 100%, then yeah, in the short term, you are going to have them now being put in the front of the line and uh, you know, going through that backlog. But if it was just on a first-come, first-served basis, everyone would have the exact same weights. Indians would not be 100%. They would be their share of the applicants, which is about 80%. So after the transition period, it wouldn't be monopolized by India or any other country. It would be just whatever the share of the population is that applied. And I think that's the fairest system, a first-come, first-served basis, which is not taking into account people's nationality. I think there's been a trend in immigration law since 1882 to try to make it more and more complicated, to put in place you know, more formulas like this, to make it more... Um, complex uh, to, to meet certain goals, sort of as compromise measures. And the result has been this sort of monstrosity of, of a system that, frankly, most people don't understand and can't understand without a legal degree, uh, very difficult. So I, I would be um, hesitant for reforms that make it more complicated overall, that don't obviously solve whatever, especially if they don't obviously solve whatever the problem is, is going forward. So that might be something what you've suggested to consider if there's no way to get rid of the caps, you know, do the simple reform. But let's try, and it seems like the get, the simple reform, getting rid of the caps, is very popular. Um, you know, in the House, especially, Fairness for High-Skilled Immigrants Act. Um, I mean, 
yeah, over 300 co-sponsors. I mean, and, and when it's passed, it's it's very very popular. So let's, you know, I think if uh, let's exhaust these um, simpler reforms that streamline the system first before we consider um, those more complex reforms. But thank you. Yeah. Okay, I think we have time for one or two more questions. Yes. Uh, thank you. I'm Steve Kopitz from Princeton Policy. Uh, I thought it was a great presentation from everyone and, and, and really helpful. We've been doing a lot of work on the market-based visas, so um, so let me defend those just in, in two sentences and I'll go for a question. The, in a market-based approach, it's a price and not a volume-based approach, and that's how you, vo you you regulate the market within the bounds of the of the keeping people inside or outside the black market. You can also use that approach to provide status to Hispanics already here, which is hard to do with an H1, H2, but there's that. I think that one of the key issues for a market-based approach is who is entitled to the relocation premium. So wages in Mexico are 250 an hour, they're 10 bucks an hour in the US roughly for unskilled, right? You have to have a higher cost of wages and, and uh, a higher cost of living plus a premium to relocate them, okay? So call it 650 an hour. So for a Mexican to come north, our calculations suggest they need 650, the market wage is 10 bucks, so it's 350 an hour differential. Who is entitled to that? Whose profit is that? I'll give you, it, it, there, there, there are four options, right? Yeah. We're actually really, I'm, I'm sorry, we're actually really short on time, so let's, let's just go with that yeah. and so we can so, get one last question in. Uh, so, you know, the wage increase for a Mexican worker coming to the U.S. lawfully, uh, who uh, is a high school dropout, um, age 35, is $10,000, uh, purchasing power parity or higher wage than what they would have had uh, in their home country. So that takes account of cost of living and everything else. That's $10,000 um, on top of that. Um, that is quite a large wage increase. So um, you can, you know, the government could tax a lot of that. They could raise fees to skim off a, bit, uh, a portion of that. But there will not be a shortage of people who want to take advantage of that large wage increase. And Mexicans, by the way, are a country with wages more similar to that of the United States and a lot of these other countries that would send large numbers of immigrants to the United States. So um, while the wage increase for Yemenis, for instance, coming to the U.S. is like a 15-fold increase in wages, um, purchasing power parity, cost of living adjusted. So I'm not really... Um, worried about there being a lack of people, but who should get that entire uh, benefit? Um, I mean, clearly some of it is going to be captured by American employers um, who get the benefit of hiring these folks. Most of it's probably going to be captured by the worker, him or herself, who will have higher wages as a result. And a certain portion of that will be captured by the U.S. government uh, through taxes and through uh, other uh, types of fees, visa fees, tariffs, or whatever. Um, but that depends entirely on how you structure it. That depends on what the prices are for it. And that depends on the demand elasticity and supply elasticity for these types of workers. So um, it could be any other types of category. It, it could be anything, uh, really. But in order to be functional and to drive people into the lawful market from the unlawful market, um, workers do need to have some kind of benefit from it. But there is a very large benefit to coming lawfully versus not coming at all or not coming unlawfully. So I'm not really, I, I'm not sure that that's uh, really a big concern. Um, and taking a look like a wage per hour uh, calculation when people can work many, many more hours 
uh, in the U.S. at higher wages because labor, demand, labor supply curves slope upwards to a very high degree. Um, so, yeah, there's that. Okay, it is one o'clock exactly, and I promised to get you out of here uh, by then, so we're now out of time. Let's give our two panelists a round of applause.